Okay, looking forward to um, this session this morning because it's uh, one I've been wanting to teach for the last three weeks now, but due to health issues, obviously, I've uh, not had the opportunity. So, um, and in a sense, it's been good because as I've kind of re- reviewed it and gone over this, uh, there's a lot more that I've gleaned personally. You know, when I teach, it, it, it's very much for me that situation of manner. You know, manner's got to be fresh every day. You can't just regurgitate something that you had before. And even this morning, just as I was just going over these notes, the Lord was just speaking to my heart about some of the things that are in this this chapter. It's, it's one of those chapters that we kind of look at, and it's very quick just to read through and skim over. Uh, and yet there's so much detail here that I think will be an encouragement and a blessing and, and probably a challenge to us in some respects as well. Uh, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time, shall we? You just commit this a time of study to the Lord. Father, we do ask that you just help us to have... Ears that will hear and hearts, Lord, that are ready to receive. Father, please, please take away any stubbornness, anything of the flesh that would stop you speaking directly to us. Um, but we want your spirit, Lord, just to have that freedom here this morning to speak to us. Lord, for those that are here this morning, those that are listening to this recording after, Lord, speak to us. Challenge us. Father, don't leave us where we are, Lord, but because you love us, because you're a gracious God, to move us on in our walk with you, that we would continue to grow in knowledge and in grace. So, Lord, we just give you this time, Lord. Just speak clearly, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're into chapter 30 of Genesis. Now, I just want to give you a quick recap of what we ended up on the previous chapter, just so we get that kind of run in to where we are. Uh, We read in Genesis 29, the last few verses, that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, I just want to, just a couple of comments, although we've gone through this this portion before. Uh, we kind of skimmed over this quickly just to get to the end of the chapter in our last uh, session in Genesis. But you remember the situation, of course, that Jacob has left home. He was being uh, was like a death threat from his brother. Um, so he ends up running away. Rachel and Isaac are very keen to uh, to preserve his life. Um, so they encourage him to leave. So he comes up to Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban, uh, a very interesting character, a bit of a scoundrel in many respects. Um, but while he's there, Obviously, as he arrives, he meets Rachel and falls in love instantly with this beautiful woman. And so agrees after a very short while that he's going to marry Rachel um, and that his labor for Laban will be his uh, dowry, in a sense, that which he's going to pay um, to obtain this bride that he's seen, that he's fallen in love with. And, of course, then... Laban does the dirty on him because it's presumably uh, an evening wedding. It's all kind of dark and and so on. Of course, they didn't have the lighting like we have now. And they get into the tent in the evening. And, of course, in the morning, as um, Jacob wakes up, he realizes that the woman he just spent the night with wasn't the woman that he thought it was going to be. It wasn't Rachel, but it was her sister, Leah. And so very irate, he goes straight storming out of the tent, goes knocks on on the canvas next door and, and speaks to is now father-in-law and says, what have you done? And Laban says, well, in our culture, and he gives kind of a, a lesson here, he says, we shouldn't do it, we shouldn't give the firstborn, sorry, the one that's not the firstborn in marriage, before the firstborn. He stands up for the right of the firstborn, which is very significant, of course, because Jacob is in this situation where he's left home because of him, not in a sense respecting the right of the firstborn. Now, of course, God was in the whole situation, God would have already engineered the situation without Jacob having to interfere. We've already talked about that. But here, Jacob given this real object lesson. And uh, seemingly, God, he, Jacob realizes that God is the one that's speaking to him through this. 
So he doesn't just storm off or run away. He agrees that he's going to work for another seven years so that he can have Rachel as well. So he ends up with these two wives. Now, we, we find that to, to start with, that of course he loves Rachel and, and doesn't love Leah. And then we come to this verse and then it's changed even more because we realize, we, we're told here that when the law saw that Leah was hated, and there is a lesson here, and of course, this is one of the dangers of uh, polygamy. You know, and it's not just in the terms of relationship, in terms of marriage, but you can't have two people in your life in this kind of scenario. And again, even just break this down to the workplace. You know, for men or women in a workplace, if you find that there's somebody that you start showing affection to, somebody that starts to become close to you, the danger is that your spouse at home will then become the one that's hated because you, your heart will only go in one direction at one time. And this is the way that God has, has wired us. And so what was originally just this relationship where, of course, he loved Rachel more than, than Leah. Leah, you know, obviously he didn't detest her to start with, but then we get to this point and there's so much friction in this relationship that we find that, Layers hated at this point. You know, it's a real lesson for us as to who we allow close to us. You know, men need to be very, very cautious, particularly around women that are in our lives that are other than our wives. I'm very conscious at work, and there's a number of ladies I obviously work with. But if ever I'm in a non-work-based conversation, I always just bring in to the fact that I'm married. I often will talk about joy. I talk about the, the children. I make it very, very clear that I'm married. I don't want there to be any suggestion or situation that arises that becomes then difficult. Anything that could potentially pull my heart in a different direction. And, you know, we all need to be so, so cautious because sin, as we're told in Hebrew, is so easily ensnares. You know, and it's the same for, for ladies too. And there's many... A pastor, um, in, in years gone by, I'm sure you're aware of accounts of different pastors where ladies in the church have gone to speak to the pastor and then there's ended up a relationship there. And it's caused a, a real problem and division within the church often. And so many times things like that happen. And that's why Paul, of course, says that the women should go and ask their own husbands. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can't speak to me as pastor and I'm happy to talk to you, but there's a, there's a, there's boundaries that we need to be very careful that we keep. We need to make sure that the, the one that we are betrothed to, the one that we're married to, is the first one in our life. Because the moment anybody else starts coming into that kind of situation, it can become a very dangerous thing. So we need to be very cautious, all of us. You know, whatever your situation, whoever is around your life, make sure that you don't have two people there that are vying for your attention and your time and your thoughts and so on. We're told then that as a result of this, the verse 32, that and Leah conceived and she bare a son and called his name Reuben. It's interesting when we look at these names and how they, they go through the naming process. Obviously for, for Matt and Nan and for Joy and myself and seemingly a number of others in, in Calvary Chapel, the ladies are pregnant at the moment. There's a lot of babies on the way uh, next year. And we're going through that kind of, what should we call the baby? And there's all sorts of names, and we sit around at a dinner table with the, the girls, and there's all sorts of names that have been suggested, um, some of them more sensible than others, you can imagine. And uh, 
it's interesting that when we look at these names, they were based upon the circumstances because effectively the, the name that's, that's given here is, is, is behold a son. <laughs> it's just, that was the name that's given. It's Reuben. That, that's what his name means. And so she just seems to name her children based upon the current circumstances. You know, so for us it could be, what are we doing? <laughs> Whatever the Hebrew is for that. For she said, surely the Lord has looked upon my affliction and now therefore my husband will love me. Interesting, isn't it? That she thinks that by giving birth to this son, she's going to win Jacob's affection. And she's going to continue to try. We'll see this as we, we go through. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I was hated, he had therefore given me this son also. So she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. So by the time she gets this third child, it's, well, surely now I've won my husband's heart. You know, she, she was looking at this situation as a way of winning something that couldn't be won in the way that she was trying. You know, we need to, to be very honest. We'll talk more about this in a moment, about the way we win people's hearts in a relationship. You know, if she didn't have his heart before, she's not going to have his heart afterwards. The, the external situations and even the children coming into the relationship didn't change anything. And we're told that she conceived again and bear a son, and she said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and left bearing. Almost at this point, there's, a, there's an implication that she's kind of realized she's not won Jacob's heart yet. And it's kind of, okay, well, I'll praise the Lord then. Now, we're going to see she goes on. She doesn't give up on this dream of winning Jacob over. But at this point, as she gives birth to her fourth son, there's this declaration. You know what? I'm just going to praise the Lord. There's an element here that could have changed probably her, her mindset forever if she'd have realized that... That which she was seeking wasn't to be found in Jacob. It wasn't in the acceptance or the love that Jacob could show her. That what she was craving more than anything was that relationship with God. And that's the same for each one of us. Whatever you think you want, when you get it, it won't satisfy. You know, if you're not content in the situation you're in now, by getting something you think you're aspiring to, that you think you want, that won't change anything. Until we come to that place of realizing it's only the Lord truly that can satisfy us. That's the, the emptiest. That's, that's the longing that we have. And of course, God will never disappoint. God will never let us down. Jesus spoke of that living water that they that drink of it will never thirst again. And isn't that the problem that most people have? Most people in their lives today have such a thirst they're not sure what that thirst is for. And so they try and fill their lives with all sorts of things to satisfy that thirst. Some people will try and fill their lives with material things. You know, the, the, the marketing machine of the world is so intent on trying to satisfy us by giving us everything that we need. And people think, well, if only I had that Ferrari and that Sunseeker and this, 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 and, or whatever, or those shoes or that handbag or clothes, or, or even if it's a relationship. Or if it was children or, or whatever. You know, you think that you'll be satisfied when you get there. It, it doesn't change. And it's a good lesson to learn that 
the most important thing, in fact, the only thing that really matters is that relationship with God. That is what will satisfy. That's why Paul says that he's learned in all situations to be content. You know, whether he had a lot, whether he had a little, it doesn't matter what was going on, because he learned that being content wasn't in the things that surrounded his life. It was on that relationship between himself and God. That's where real contentment comes. But just again, just to look at these names then. And of course, God is a, a God of mercy and compassion. He looks upon the afflicted. Psalm 140 verse 12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. What a, a lovely verse to, to memorize, that God will always look out for and maintain the cause of those that are afflicted. That's the, the God we serve. Now, seemingly born during the seven years now that Jacob is serving for Rachel, first of all, it's look a son. And the second one is named Hearing, Simeon. Actually comes from the same root in Hebrew as Shema. You're familiar with the Shema from Deuteronomy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Shema, that's the same root that Simeon comes from, means hearing, hear, O Israel. And then Levi, Levi means attached or joined to. So these, these names, again, purely based upon the circumstances and situations. It's interesting how they named their children not because it was a pretty name, but because it meant something. There was a real implication in the name itself. Judah, then, the fourth child, means praise. And you're familiar with that. The, the place of Bethlehem, Judah, is actually the house of bread and praise. We, we see that in the book of Ruth. That uh, phrase is used there, speaking of Bethlehem, Judah. And actually, Paul uses the, the play on the words here of Judah in the book of Romans. Because he says there, For he is not a Jew, obviously a contraction of, of Judah, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. He's talking about not a, a physical cutting away of flesh, but actually a spiritual cutting away of flesh. It's, it's the heart that's the important thing. In the spirit and not in the letter. And he says, whose praise is not of men. See, the word he uses there effectively is Judah, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So specifically, Paul uses this play on words that if you want to be a real Jew, then again, the word means praise. Well, your praise is not of men, but of God. Similar themes we were just saying a moment ago. So that gives us a good springboard to carry on into chapter 30. And we read there, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. It's a pointless thing, really, isn't it? You know, it wasn't, in a sense, Leah's fault that the situation has occurred. And what was Rachel going to achieve by doing it other than getting all knotted up and twisted and, and bitter in her own heart. But we're told that Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, give me children or else I die. What a crazy thing to say. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in God's stead? Who has withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? He's basically saying, the problem's not on my end, dear. And she said, behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her. And she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. Now, that was a common practice. We saw the situation, of course, with Abraham and the situation with Hagar. That kind of almost idea of surrogacy going on. And so, because Rachel can't bear her own children, 
She wants to be able to be part of this somehow. So she says, well, then take my maid. Jacob doesn't seem to put too much of a fight up at this point. But it's interesting what she says. Again, give me children or else I die. You know, we need to be very, very cautious about the words that we use. And you may not have seen these things before, but throughout Scripture there's a number of examples where people say things very foolishly without thinking about them. You see, in Matthew 12, 37... Jesus said, therefore, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Uh, If you just turn with me, as a little tangent for a moment, just to the book of Joshua, and to chapter 6. And some of you may have already seen this before. I just want to underline this for you. In Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26, this is after the defeat of Jericho. Joshua 6, 26, we read, Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So just Joshua pronounces the curse, and probably a lot of people at the time thought, yeah, yeah, whatever. But Joshua really seriously says this because of what Jericho had been and what it had represented. He places a curse on anybody that were to, at some point in the future, try and rebuild the city. Well, now turn with me to First Kings chapter 16. In First Kings chapter 16, in verse 34, we're just given an aside in the text. It's talking about other issues and things and so on. But verse 34 says, In his days did Hael, the Bethlehemites, build Jericho. And then we're told, He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof, in his youngest son, Sergab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So this man that rebuilds Joshua, when he starts the building project, we find that his firstborn son dies. And when he completes the work, his youngest son dies. How sad that people don't take words seriously. As Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. There's an interesting situation, of course, with Matthew, sorry, um, with Peter in the New Testament. Remember, after Jesus is arrested, and Peter goes and follows John, and he's standing in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, and this young girl says, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, I'm not. Don't know him. Three times that happens, and Peter says, no, I'm not one of his disciples. And eventually Peter runs away, and here's the, the cock crow, and realizes, remembers what Jesus has said and just breaks down and realizes that he's just denied Jesus. And then we find at the end of John's gospel, three times, Jesus asks the question, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And we're told that Peter's grieved because Jesus asked the question three times. But three times Peter had denied it. Now interestingly, when they arrive, the, they arrive at the tomb, I believe it's one of the angels that's there, he says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's not classed as one of the disciples at that point. Peter said, I'm not one of the disciples. And the Lord says, okay, you're not one of my disciples. Graciously, God brings him back in and we see that restoration in the book of John. I just say that because you need to be careful about what you say. There is a reality to blessings and cursing. And there's a number of examples that we see in scripture. So be careful 
what words we use and what we say. Little flippant comments sometimes. You know, people just say, oh, I'm sick of this. What, what are you saying when you, when, you, when you say things like that? You know, are you, are you speaking judgment and sickness upon yourself? I'll let you ponder those things and tell them to the Lord if you want to. But just be careful because there's enough in Scripture, little warning flags there to say, watch what you say. And the reason I say this is because Rachel here, this little flippant comment, what do we find happens? Well, she gives, of course, birth to Joseph. And then when she gives birth to Benjamin, she dies. She dies in, in childbirth. Interesting. So she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me. So again, her, again, naming based upon the circumstance. And has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, called she his name Dan. That's what the name Dan means, judge. And Bilhah, Rachel's, make a seat again and bear Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed, well, she thought she'd prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. Again, she's not winning anything. She's not winning any arguments here. She's not actually solving the problem. Because, as I said earlier, you know, her desire was to have children. So she thinks, well, you know what? If I let Jacob have my handmaid, then I can have children and surrogate children through her, effectively. And so then Jacob will love me. Does it change anything? Does she desire children any less? No, not at all. Her desire wasn't changed. So... She has everything, but she doesn't have that which she's really wanting here. Interestingly, Bilhah means troubled. Again, it's flashbacks to the situation with Sarah and Abraham and Hagar, of course. Well, those sons, Dan means to judge. Daniel, by the way, again, the L at the end of the word is uh, the name of God, as in Elohim. And so God is my judge is what Daniel means, but Dan just means to judge. And then Naphtali uh, wrestling or struggle, again, the, the names that Rachel gives to these children. But then we're told that when Leah saw that she be- left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave Jacob to wife. Jacob now has four wives. Again, we don't see him complaining at this point. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son, and Leah said, A troop cometh, and she called his name Gad. In a sense, she's saying, Reinforcements have arrived for, for my own cause here. Still trying to win over Jacob's heart. And Zilpah Leah's made bear Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. Yeah, they may call her blessed, but she still hadn't got what she wanted. She wanted to win over Jacob's heart. You know, Zilpah, it just means a trickle or a dropping. In the context here, it just maybe it helped a little, but really was it a benefit to her? Gad, just again a troop or attack as we've seen. Asher means happy, comes from the Hebrew word which means blessed. And they were told, and Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest. So these children are growing up. Reuben old enough, old enough to go out in the field on his own at this point. And we told he went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field. Obviously recognizing what they are and understanding the significance seemingly, he brought them unto his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. I'll explain why she was so keen in a moment. 
And she said, so Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? This is the contention here because, of course, originally, Jacob should have just been Rachel's husband. And so Rachel, in a sense, has a real reason to feel as if she'd been cheated out of this situation because she knew that Jacob wanted to marry her. The fact is Jacob worked 14 years, effectively, to have Rachel. He hadn't worked one day to get Leah. And so she said, so, but Leah says, you know, you've taken my husband. Is it a small matter that I was taking my husband? Would I also take away son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. So when Jacob gets home in the evening... There's this conversation, and Leah says, tonight, honey, you're mine. And, of course, Rachel thinking that she's going to come out of this deal very well, I'll explain why in a moment, but it all backfires on her. Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, thou must come into me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. Poor old Jacob, dutifully told that he lay with her that night. Now, these mandrakes, interesting they're a kind of a potato-type plant. They're often called and referred to as love apples because they are like an apple. They look very similar to an apple. Um, but they are supposedly endowed with this property, some uh, aphrodisiac kind of power they're supposed to have. And so this is why when Le- Leah gets hold of them, she's keen to, to obviously take advantage of them, but Rachel then sees it and she wants to buy them. She thinks this might make all the difference. Of course it doesn't. Her own desire was still to have children herself. And of course, as I say, the whole thing backfires because by allowing then this situation, that presumably from the context here, what we deduce from this is that as a general rule, Jacob was spending his nights with Rachel and not with Leah. But as a result of this, and the night that he spends them with Leah, Leah becomes pregnant again. And we read, And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived and bare Jacob a fifth son. And that mother just made, must have made Rachel's heart sink because it was just not what she wanted. And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I've given my maiden to my husband and she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God has endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, it's interesting, we told about one daughter here. Now, we, uh, we understand that Jacob had other daughters. None of them are mentioned. In this culture, of course, the key thing was seen as having sons. Uh, listening to some of the commentaries, it suggested that, that if there was a, a son born, there'd be a great celebration. And when the, the, the woman was coming near uh, the, the end of the pregnancy, they would get ready to have a great celebration. And of course, if the son was born, they'd have a wonderful celebration. If it was a daughter, they'd just pack everything away and go home. It, you know, that's, that's the way it was at that time. And only one daughter's mentioned. And the reason Dinah's mentioned here is because she's very significant in a situation that will occur in a few chapters' time. So she's recorded in the text for us at this point. But seemingly the other daughters of, of Jacob, and we're not told how many there were, uh, are not recorded here. And so these are different additional children we're told about. The second season of childbearing, Issachar meaning wages, Zebulun dwelling or habitation, and Dinah meaning justice or judgment. It, you know, one just aside here though, again, looking at the situation, Rachel wanting to try and win this love from Jacob, her husband. And seemingly thinking that, that by, for Leah trying to win again that love of her husband, and thinking that if she could sleep with him, 
offering a sense of her body that he would love her for that. And that's not the way, again, that love works. You know, sadly, we live in a world where there's a lot of young women who think that if they can offer their bodies to their boyfriends, that their boyfriends will love them. That's not the way it works. You know, we just need to educate our children to understand so much more than, than the world will teach them about these things. Verse 22, and God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. So finally, God is the one that does this. We've already seen that God is the one that could open wombs. We saw that back with Sarah. God is the one that does miracles. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 just reminds us, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. You know, if, if the Lord has placed a calling on your life, if the Lord has promised something to you, well, wait. You don't have to engineer circumstances. And we've seen this so much through looking at the patriarchs, how they tried to engineer things to make things happen. Every time it causes a problem. And the grief and the, the strife that Rachel went through, you know, her own heart being broken, no doubt, through the whole of this, this period of time. But eventually God, in his timing, allows her to conceive. Again, Abraham waited 25 years. Moses waited 40 years. Daniel, for the promise that he knew God had given, waited for 70 years. And there's many other examples in Scripture of people that are prepared just to wait for the Lord and for the Lord's timing. And she conceived the bear son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. So whether this is just a, a hopeful plea seemingly here, rather than any kind of word of prophecy, she finally gives birth to this son, meaning he will add. Now, Rachel will have that other son, but it will become, as we said earlier, the death of her. As we already mentioned, if a person is not satisfied now, they'll not be satisfied then. You know, again, and she thought, just, just as Leah thought that, that obtaining this love from Jacob by having children, that, or by having children, she'd get Jacob's love. That didn't work. And for Rachel, wanting children, having children didn't satisfy her. Not in the way that she thought it was going to. Jacob, by the way, is now 91 years old. He's in pretty good shape for a 91-year-old, wouldn't you say? You know, throughout Scripture we see evidence of God's design. And I love this because we've talked about these names already. We've talked about the fact that these names were not just a pretty name that they got out of the baby name book. These are names that meant something. And again... We see throughout Scripture these patterns and structure that are beyond engineering. Now, every one of these names means something. We've seen that already. We've seen it in the naming there. But the names also have seemingly a greater meaning than they do just individually. Because what we see is when we look at the names, they collectively seem to tell the history of the nation of Israel in advance. And this could only be engineered by God. Of course, the nation comes to be a proper nation whilst they're in Egypt. It's at that point that God effectively looks upon them as his own. And of course, you remember what Leah said, the Lord has surely looked to my affliction. Well, doesn't that speak of that situation in Egypt? Simeon, of course, the name means heard. The Lord has heard that I'm unloved. Again, the way that the Egyptians were treating the Israelites. But then Levi means joined to. 
My husband will become attached to me. You know, and we get to this situation where God and the nation of Israel are effectively espoused, they're joined together, that God takes Israel as his own. Of course, with the Exodus itself, the name Judah meaning praise, as the nation praised the Lord for this deliverance. But then that time in the wilderness, the children of Bilhar troubled, the name means there. Of course, Dan means to judge. God has judged my case, but it's interesting that it's during this time that the law is given. And Naphtali, name means wrestling. Okay, wrestlings I have wrestled. Well, you've just got to read through Numbers and Deuteronomy particularly to see that great wrestling of Israel during that wilderness time. But then they get into the land of promise under Joshua. And of course, then the next child that comes along is Gad, name meaning a troop or an attack, which is what they do. They move into the promised land. And then, of course, as they dwell in this land that God has provided them, this land of milk and honey, the next child that comes along, of course, is Asher, meaning I am happy. And then Issachar, wages. God has given me my wages. As God gave Israel houses that they'd not have to build and Fields they'd not have to, to have to plant and so on. And then Zebulun means dwelling or habitation. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Again, this blessing, this land that God had given to the nation. But then we get to the time that they moved out of the land, that God causes them to be dispersed around the nations of the world. And Dinah means justice or judgment as God brings this judgment on the nation. Of course, then we get to the Messianic kingdom. And then we have the next child that's recorded in the list for us is Joseph, meaning he will add, God has taken away my reproach. And you think of the nation of Israel in that time as God will take away their reproach that they have in the nations. You know, we're told of people wanting to just grab the the coat of of a Jew. You know, I walk in London, I see Jews obviously walking around often and I always feel blessed when I get to stand near a Jew. Every time I stand near a Jew, I just pray for them. But there's going to come a time that people will want to say to the Jews, tell us about your God. So you see this wonderful picture of Israel's history laid out here in advance. And of course, one more son is going to be born that's not yet given to us in this list, but it will be in chapter 35, is the only son that's born in the promised land. Born on the outskirts of Bethlehem, Benjamin, whose name means son of my sorrow, but also his name is then corrected or changed by Jacob, the son of my right hand. Doesn't that speak of the Messiah? Jesus, who was a man of sorrows, but then also raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of the Father. See, just this lovely picture in these names, in the order that they're given, in the order that they're born, that just seem to depict so beautifully the whole history and future of the nation of Israel. Looking at the families, we know it, of course, uh, Leah is given first and then Rachel, and we've seen the children from Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then we find that Bilhah is the next to conceive with Dan and Naphtali, and then finally Rachel gives her handmaid Zilpah, and then we have Gad and Asher come along, and then finally Joseph, and then Issachar comes along, Zebulun comes along, and then finally, Benjamin. But we also have another two children that later become adopted by Jacob. They're the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. 
and it's maybe a technicality that you, you miss over when we get to the latest stages of Genesis towards the end of the book. But Manasseh and Ephraim are adopted as Jacob's own. Now, we have effectively, therefore, if you like, an alphabet of 14 to choose from, the, the 12 sons, but then Manasseh and Ephraim, which is why when we look in Scripture at the children of Israel, the names as they're listed, 20 times the names are listed in Scripture. But we don't always have the exact same list, because sometimes you'll have the, the list, as we've just seen, effectively, the, the birth order, but sometimes you'll find that Joseph is taken out of that list, and Manasseh is replaced, and Ephraim is added into the list, but then one of the others are taken out. Often Levi will find is taken out because Levi would to be a priestly tribe and to serve God. And they had no inheritance in the land and so on. So the, the, the lists differ accordingly. Now, I'm going to go through all the details of this. I'll put it here for you so you can look at it in the notes. But this is where those lists occur. We've already seen this natural order in Genesis 29 through to 35. Again, chapter 46, we'll see it as they enter Egypt in chapter 49 and so on. In the book of Exodus, we see it. In the book of Numbers, you see there are a number of times the, the children of Israel uh, are listed. And again, you've got the notes so you can see which ones uh, are omitted, where they are omitted uh, and so on. Because we've always got these 14 to choose from to make up 12. Deuteronomy, again, we're given the lists in the jo- Joshua, the book of Judges and First Chronicles and Ezekiel, and then finally in the book of Revelation, again, where, interestingly, Dan is omitted from that list uh, for some interesting reasons that scholars uh, uh, guess and have some conjecture over. Um, when Israel went down into Egypt, Jacob, Israel, of course, the same, one of the same person, there were 70 people. Does the nation just consist of 70 or the family? But after 215 years of being there, they've now become a nation of about 2 million or so. Now we're given the numbers and they're grouped together in groups of three um, because of the way they marched in the camp and so on. But Reuben, Simeon and Gad would come under the tribal banner, the standard of Reuben. And we're told how many of them are there. These are recorded for us in the book of Numbers. Uh, Judah, Issachar and Zebulun again were given the numbers. Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin are grouped together and numbers and then Dan and Asher and Naphtali. Again, we're given the numbers of how many men of war uh, there were at the time of uh, coming out of uh, Egypt at that point. The total men of war, we told, was 603,550. So we've got to add to that all the women and the children and, the, and so on. And that's why we get our approximate number of about 2 million. Now, still already the Levites were not to be counted in the army. They were only to serve the Lord. And they were to camp around the tabernacle itself. Uh, and each tribe was to camp by its own standard. So the head of each of those groups, of three, would typically have their own tribal standard, and the others would camp around them as well. Now, it's interesting because with the tabernacle that you're familiar with in the wilderness, the tribes were to camp around the tabernacle. The Levites were in the center, but they were to camp in a very specific way because the camp of Judah was to be east of the Levites. The camp of Reuben was to be the south uh, strict obedience, therefore, actually means that they couldn't camp the southeast. So they had to camp just going away from where the tabernacle was, however broad, however long the tabernacle was, they would camp moving away from it. So only moving in cardinal directions of the compass, as it were. And again, only the width of the camp that was allowed. And the length then would be proportional to the numbers of people in each of the groups. So they spread out further and further if there was more in the group or not. So when we look at the camp, the Levites were camped in the middle, camped around the tabernacle. 
And again, there was a number of them. So the Gershonites, typically, one of Aaron's sons, 7,500 of those all camped around. So it's quite a large area of camp around the actual tabernacle itself. But going out in the, the direction, so typically Judah, as we've already seen, on the, uh, that's on the east side, 186,400 of them with the other two tribes associated. But they couldn't move into that area that was southeast because that wouldn't be what the regulation that God had given would allow. So they had to camp in that strip, as it were, moving out away from the tabernacle. And we see the same for the tribe of Reuben. We're given their number, 151,450. Camp of Ephraim, moving out from the tabernacle. We're given their number, 108,100. And then finally Dan on the other side, 157,600. Now... This is all the stuff we find recorded for us in the book of Numbers. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because, A, we're looking at the names of these children. But it's fascinating that when you think of the likes of Balaam, who looked down on the camp of Israel, when Balak calls him to come and curse the nation, what would he have seen as he looked down? Well, if you look down from above on the, the camp of Israel, arranged in their tribes as they are, you would look down from the sky and you would see this. You see Judah camped on the side, as you see there with with Reuben, with Ephraim and Dan. Each of them had their tribal banners. The tribal banner of Judah was a lion. Of Reuben, it would have been an ox. Ephraim, a man. And Dan, an eagle. Now if that starts to ring bells, it should because it's exactly what we see recorded for us of those four cherubim in Revelation and Ezekiel and so on, that are around the throne of God, all speaking of the Messiah. This cross-shaped arrangement of these tents in the wilderness, camping around the tabernacle. Of course, Jesus was the lion of the, the tribe of Judah, but also he was an ox as in terms of a beast of burden. He came to serve. He was a perfect man, and yet also he was God, soaring above. Again, you look at the names of these key tribes, the ones that standards were therefore Judah means praise Ephraim means fruitful Reuben affliction and Dan means judged again all speaking of, of Jesus it's just incredible the, the design that we find in scripture that is way beyond anything that man could engineer or orchestrate that's such a beautiful picture that's painted there you actually find that this also maps throughout the rest of the Bible in terms of the way the gospels are structured Of course, Matthew presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, like the ox, a beast of burden. Luke very much deals with the humanity of Jesus. And then John, very much ever looking at that supernatural element of that eagle, the idea of soaring above. And we see so many of these things again throughout the rest of the Bible. Just the whole book being one book that God has given us. Also of interest, when we look at that list, we're not going to go through all those lists, of course, for time this morning, but in Revelation 7, that's the way the, the names are listed for us. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Of course, the, the ones that are miss, missing are Dan and Ephraim from that list for very interesting reasons. But look at the... The way this is listed, in the order that they're listed in Revelation, and looking at the names, the meaning of the names that were given, we have, praise the Lord, he has looked on my affliction, 
and granted good fortune. Happy am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me, purchased me, and exalted me by adding to me the son of his right hand. Isn't that amazing? It came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said unto Laban, send me away. I think he was saying, I need a holiday <laughs> after all this uh, bearing or having children. Send me away that I may go unto my own place into my country. Of course, Jacob, very keen to get back home. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service once you have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for thy sake. Interesting statement, isn't it? That this, may I put it this way, a secular boss notices that God is with him and realizes that he is blessed because of Jacob's presence. And isn't that the way it should be? Whenever we are around others, that they should realize that there's a blessing because the Lord is with us. And he said, appoint me thy wages and I'll give it. So Laban's saying, okay, look, please stay. Name your terms. And he said unto him, thou knowest how I have served thee and how thy cattle was with me, for it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. The Lord has blessed thee since my coming. And now, when shall I provide for my own house also? Again, this association has seen this blessing. And remember that promise back to Abraham, that I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You just see it being played out in this scenario. And he said, what shall I give thee? And Jacob said, thou shalt not give me anything. If thou do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock, and I will pass through all the flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and all the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. It's interesting, this request that Jacob puts forward. Jacob is saying, look, I'm going to take all that which isn't pure. I'll take everything that is not pure, anything that's marked or, or, or in any way, shape or form, I will take those. And God will bring blessing out of that which is defiled effectively. And isn't that what God always does? God has taken us in the states we were, and God will purify, God will bring blessing. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. So it's a very simple way of accounting whose is whose. Anything that's got marks on it or is you know, discolored in any way will be Jacob's. All the, all the pure colored ones will be Laban's. So Laban agrees this. Laban says, I would, it might be according to thy word. There's a great deal to shake on it. And Jacob, again we see, will have no good thing. <laughs> and yet this will be counted for righteousness by faith. Once again, we see that with our own lives. And he rewarded that day, sorry, he removed that day the he goats that were ring ring streaked and spotted, and all the goats that were speckled and spotted, and everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's fox. It's interesting that, again, that, that Jacob here, serving faithfully, even though he's been cheating and swindled and so on, and uh, Jacob took him rods. It's a bizarre thing, this, but let's just read this. Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of hazel and the chestnut and piled it, uh, applied white streaks in them and made them white uh, appear 
which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had um, before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs, when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. Now, there's all sorts of things written in commentaries about what actually is going on here. And nobody really seems to have any idea uh, definitively as to what was going on and why Jacob was doing it. Clearly, Jacob felt that this was, for some reason, going to cause the the cattle that he had to conceive by this whole bizarre thing that he's setting up. And the flocks conceived before the rods. Some people have suggested it's to, it's to do with the, the colours and the, the effect that it had on the, the cattle, but there's no logical or real rational explanation that, that satisfies. Uh, but regardless of this, and they brought forth cattle, ring streaked, spot, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the uh, ring streaked and all in, uh, sorry, and all the brown in the flock of labour. Uh, and he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not unto Laban's cattle. What's going on is that Jacob's flock is getting larger and larger, and of course poor old Laban's flock is seemingly dwindling. And it came to pass that whosoever, sorry, that whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses brings us to the end it's a bizarre situation that we see going on but god blessing jacob as god had already promised him and that journey out as he was at bethel as he has that dream he sees that ladder god promising to bless him and jacob now learning seemingly to trust god through these things let's bow our hearts shall we and just thank the Lord. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity just to study these things. And Lord, we thank you for the things here that we do understand. Father, we thank you for, even though we don't fully comprehend why Jacob went about that strange thing with the the cattle. Lord, what we do know is that you blessed him. That Lord, you blessed him because you promised you would bless him. And Lord, we just thank you that you're a God who keeps your promises. Father, thank you for the lessons that we can learn from this chapter. Father, thank you that we're reminded that we can only be satisfied, Lord, in you. Lord, in not striving or seeking or trying to fulfill our desires in any other way. But Lord, just coming to you to seek you first and foremost. Oh Lord, may you be number one in our lives, we pray. Father, thank you for this time. Just keep us growing in grace, we ask, and walking by faith as we go through this week ahead. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.